Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Okay, today we're going to continue on our look at the book of Jude. And today, I think I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. And we're going to be covering um, verses 3 and 4 today. Let's start at verse 1. It says, Jude, a bond slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Lord, we come to you today. knowing that we can take joy in what you have done for us. We come to you with empty hands anytime we come to your throne as far as any merit on our own. But Lord, we also come with hands that have our burdens in them and we can cast those on you knowing that you care for us as a father does. And today is fitting to think of you, who is our perfect Heavenly Father that loves us beyond what we can even imagine. And Lord, even those things that you allow us to go through are for our good because of your love for us. We thank you for your word. Lord, I do pray that this messenger doesn't get in the way and that we can learn today and be encouraged and challenged through your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Last week we looked at verses 1 and 2, and we saw that Jude referred to himself as a bond slave of Christ, and hopefully all of you marked out servant and put in the word slave, which it's supposed to be, and we covered that last week. Jude reminded the true believers of their position and blessings in Christ. They were the called, the beloved, and the kept. The mercy, peace, and love that we receive from God is because we are called, beloved, and kept. Now we come to why Jude wrote this specific letter to them. This is a different letter than he intended to write. So let's begin at verse 3 here at the first word, beloved. Jude is showing his shepherd's heart by addressing this body of Christ as beloved. Because we are beloved of God, we are beloved to each other. Jude's love and concern for them was from a heart that cared for them because they were in Christ just as he is. Because we are the beloved who are in Christ, We have the same common salvation, 
same common cause and the same common enemy. We'll be looking at these three things this morning in our passage, our common salvation, our common cause, and our common enemy. First, we will look at our common salvation. Jude says in verse 3, while I was making every effort to you to write to write to you about our common salvation. He had every intention in writing a letter about their common salvation that they shared together, but there was something more urgently needed to be dealt with in front of him. This is the reason he wrote this letter. But let's take a minute and look at this common salvation he mentions here. Our common salvation is because we are the called, the beloved, and the kept by God. Those called, beloved, and kept also experience God's mercy, peace, and love. And I know, I know I am saying this again, but this is important for us to remember. Because of this, we have a common salvation which brings us into one fold together. We are one in Christ because of what God has done for us. Our salvation is based entirely on Christ's work for us. He lived a perfect life that is placed on our account as if we lived that perfect life. He died in our place for all of our sins, and he took away the judgment and the shame and the guilt we had. We are one body of Christ because of his work and application of that work in each of us. Unlike a physical family that can be splintered, the spiritual body of Christ cannot be separated from one another. We individually make up the whole body of Christ. We have the same Father, same Holy Spirit, same faith, and same hope of eternal life. Because of our union in Christ, we are in union with each other. We are the beloved vertically and horizontally. I have a dear pastor friend that calls his congregation the beloved. And that's a beautiful picture of our standing in Christ and with each other. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with what you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also we're, we're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And in John 3, 34 through 35, Jesus says, I am giving you a new commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There is, however, no unity outside of correct biblical doctrine. We live in a day where doctrine is marginalized at best and completely absent at worst within the visible church. It is not love to have unity at all costs, but it is rather a denial of the faith. 
J.C. Ryle, known for his holiness book, Who Lived, in the 1800s said, unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It is the very unity of hell. Jude's intention was to write a letter about the common salvation that they shared together in Christ. Circumstances caused him to change the theme of this letter. We can assume that Jude heard reports of how some were causing division and chaos within this little body of believers. So our first point was we have a common salvation. Our second point is our common cause. There is an urgency in his letter because of the seriousness of the damage that these false professors were creating. We saw in verses 1 and 2 that Jude reminds them of their standing in Christ, which gave them the confidence in the midst of this turbulent storm of apostates. This is fitting given the situation which he was addressing. They needed to be reminded and assured of these truths so that they could stand and be soldiers of Christ in the battle for the faith, which was once and for all handed down to us through the prophets and apostles. So the purpose of this letter is to exhort them to contend for the faith. The greatest threat to the church has always been and will continue to be that of false teachers who come as sheep but are actually ravenous wolves looking to devour the weak in the body of Christ. Just look at what passes for Christianity today, and you can see the group Jude is writing about is no different where we are at today. John MacArthur said, let me get it over here, sorry. False teachers are made not are, are not made outside Christianity. They are always bred in the church, half in and half out, but eventually they reject the truth and try to seduce others in their attempt to fulfill their self-gratification. An example of this happened just recently. There was a group of men that gathered a few years ago to write up a statement that they titled the Statement on Gospel Justice our social justice and the gospel. You can go look up that document, but most if not all of us would affirm it and sign it. But the Union Theological Seminary here in the US posted the following response to that statement. We deny that salvation is only found through Christianity, that God's salvific grace is exclusive to any single faith or religion. Moreover, in God's eyes, there is no difference in spiritual value or worth between those who are in Christ and those who aren't. I'm using this as an example of what we are dealing with in the visible church. This post they sent out denies the gospel completely. Jude was in the same situation with false teachers that were deceiving others even about the basics of the gospel, just as Union Theological Seminary is doing. And I just want to clarify, because Michael Reeves is a good friend of mine, we're not talking about Union School of Theology in Wales. This one is here in America, just to make that clear. Michael will shoot me if any of you walked away thinking it was his 
um, school of theology. Well, go, Jude goes on in verse 3 and says, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. So this is our common cause right here. So Jude felt the necessity to write them out of a shepherd's love for his flock. He had a heavy burden and responsibility to warn them of these false teachers. He was a watchman on the city wall for those who would do harm to the citizens of that city. In Ezekiel 33, 1 through 6, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon a land and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the horn and warns the people, then someone who hears the sound of the horn but does not take warning and a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the horn but did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the horn and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away for his wrongdoing, but I will require his blood from the watchman's hand. Silence was not an option for Jude. He was the watchman that needed to warn them of the dangers in their midst. Just as we see in our passage here in Ezekiel, Jude was being that watchman who blew the horn to warn the people. Our elders and leaders have a duty to sound the horn of warning against false teachers, but we also have a duty to respond to that warning and take action against false teaching. This is exactly what Jude is doing when he appeals to them to contend for the faith. The word appealing here is the Greek word parakaleo, which means exhorting or encouraging. This is an ongoing command to continue to contend for the faith. This isn't a one-time action taken, but we are continuously to be on the lookout for false teachers among us. I was thinking of how we get those amber alerts that probably drives us all nuts, right? We're sitting there with people and all of a sudden 12 phones go off at the same time. They bring to our attention a situation that is dangerous, not only for those involved, be it a kidnapping, a missing elderly person, or some other situation, but also for the danger they may be to others. Here we have Jude giving us an alert, but this alert is even more important than an amber alert, because this is dealing with the spiritual welfare of the church. Jude uses the word contend, which carries the idea of athletic competition. The picture here is to struggle or to wrestle with great exertion. It can also be used in the context of warfare. We are in a battle where we must struggle for the sake of the gospel. Brecht did a great series on the armor of God some time back, and if you have not listened to that series, you need to be 
you need to and you need to be reminded that we are soldiers who must stand firm in our faith and be ready to defend the body of biblical doctrine that we have been entrusted with. Let me just make it clear, we are not to be a contentious people. A contentious person sees everything as a fight even when it is not. A contentious person usually is very prideful who thinks they are always right. They are devoid of humility and respond in the flesh rather than the spirit. But Jude's command is intended to stir up the faithful that has been that has that have possibly been duped or asleep on the job. There are many preference issues that need to be kept in the preference column, but there are many issues that have been settled by God's word and we must contend for those. So what is Jude telling us to contend for? He's telling us to contend for the faith. But what is the faith that we are to contend for? Jude is specifically talking about objective faith. This, is, this faith is composed of the biblical doctrines that have been given in their fullness, nothing to be added or taken away from these. It is the gospel that has been proclaimed, yet veiled and not fully revealed in the Old Testament by Moses and the prophets, and fully revealed in Christ in completeness, and taught by his apostles. The apostles gave us the full picture of the faith in their writings, and it is complete and once for all handed down to the saints. We also know this, know this gospel as the doctrines of grace. We have covered these in the past, I think about a year ago, in our Cornerstone Academy, we did a series on the doctrines of grace, so you can go listen to those also. Simply put, this is speaking of the objective gospel that the apostles made clear to us in their writings, and also the whole of scripture supports the apostles' teaching. Every attack by outsiders and false teachers within the church is really an attack on the gospel. And you can put everything in that, Christology, the um, inerrancy of God's word, it all goes into the gospel. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Paul in Romans says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, But the righteous man shall live by faith. We can have confidence that this once delivered for all time faith is the only way to Christ. There are not several ways to Christ. It is not a buffet where we can pick and choose what we want to believe, but it's rather an object objective body of truth to which we must hold fast. Many of us fear too much, 
fear man too much and we do not defend the faith when we deal with others that espouse their false views of Christ's salvation and his word. J.C. Ryle said of his day, There is a widespread desire to appear kind, loving, and open-minded. Many seem half ashamed to say that anybody can be wrong or is a false teacher. As true as that was in the 1800s, it's doubly true today. But we must not be these people. We must love God and his word more than wanting people to think of us as kind, loving, and open-minded. It is unkind and unloving to not expose false teachers. There is only one true gospel and only one way to God. Some of you maybe have heard the name Oprah, as in Winfrey. Oprah has led many astray and says this, There are many paths to what you call God. There couldn't possibly be just one. Well, Oprah and anyone else that says this is a false teacher and denies our Lord's own words. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is only one way to God, and that is through Christ. The attacks on our faith will keep happening, and that is why we must be like the first century church in Berea. They searched the scriptures to confirm what the Apostle Paul was teaching them. In Acts 17.11 it says, Now these people were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures to see whether these things were so. And also in 2 Timothy 2.15 we read, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Why are we called to contend for the faith? Well, let's continue on into verse 4 of Jude and see our next point. We've covered our common salvation, our common cause is to defend the faith, and then our common enemy, our common enemy. He says in verse 4 in Jude here, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Here we have the answer. Because certain people had crept into the body of Christ that were ungodly people but professed to be of Christ. The word translated kept in, crept in unnoticed, is only used here in the New Testament, and it means those that slip in secretly with evil intention. They infiltrated the life of the body of Christ. These are spiritual frauds that masquerade as one of us. I've been using the word apostate, and I think it would be good to give a definition of what that means. John MacArthur has a good definition here, and don't worry, I'm not going to quote John MacArthur all the way through this thing, but John MacArthur is one of our stalwarts that has um, contended for the faith, so he has some great stuff on that. John MacArthur says this uh, to define what apostate is. 
Apostates are those who fall away from the truth, abandoning what they formerly professed to believe. The term describes those whose beliefs are so deficient as to place them outside the pale of true Christianity. For example, a liberal denomination that denies the authority of Scripture or the de deity of Christ is an apostate denomination. These apostates were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. This is a truth that many struggle with, and it is called the doctrine of reprobation. Just as God has elected some for salvation, he also passes over others and allows them to stay in their state of damnation. We also can call this the doctrine of predestination. I hope I can make this simple enough to understand, though it is very rich if you take time to study this. And if you want a good book on this, The Doctrine of Predestination by Lorraine Bettner is a great book. And Lorraine is a guy, not a girl, by the way, just to clarify that. So I hope I can make this simple to understand. This doctrine has to do with the order of decrees. I do believe the Bible 100% teaches double predestination, but let me explain. And we could go through a lot, <laughs> 10 class periods going through superlapsarianism, infralapsarianism, sublapsarianism, semi-Pelagianism, and all the stuff that deals with this. But for now, let me hopefully give you a simple way to understand this. Here's the order of decrees that hopefully will help you grasp this truth. Please understand this is a logical order of God's decrees that were done in eternity past and then played out in time. God, first, God created man, the first Adam. Adam was the only one that could actually keep a covenant of works. God said to Adam in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, The Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of light, of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Adam represented all of the human race. Everyone that was born after him was represented in him. When Adam sinned, we all fell, so all men were in a state of damnation. Out of that fallen state, God chose to save some because of his secret will and good pleasure, and he left others for their final judgment. Again, just as Adam represented his people, the entire human race, Christ represented those that God had chosen to save before the foundation of the world. Romans 5.17 says, For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. God has every right to do just this. He has no obligation to save anyone. He did not cause all of us to fall into damnation. Adam did that as our representative. We chafe at this because we simply do not understand the scriptures and the character of God. He is just and right to damn them and put his wrath upon them for eternity if that is what he has chosen to do. God is holy and righteous in all that he does. 
and he is also a God of mercy and grace. He is merciful to some, to some whom he has chosen, though no one deserved to be redeemed at all. Through the gospel, we see his mercy and grace on display. So the question is, why, do, why doesn't he save everybody? The question is, why is, does he save any of us? Because we all deserve damnation. Romans 9, 10 through 16, Paul says, And not only that, but there was also Rebekah, when she conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purposes, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And don't twist that. That is talking about the person, not the nations. It's talking about the person. Too many people try to do gymnastics around that and twist it. But that's what it's saying. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Far from it. For he says to Moses, I will show mercy on whomever I have mercy. And I will show compassion to whomever I show compassion. So that it does not depend on the person who wants it, nor the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now this does not give us a license to not preach the gospel to all men. We have a duty and obligation to Christ to be his ambassadors to an unreconciled world. We can preach the gospel boldly, knowing that he has chosen some to be saved. And when the last person is saved on this earth, it is over. Because our Lord is going to come back then. So continue to proclaim the gospel to an unreconciled world. These people Jude is talking about have been marked out for the damnation since the beginning, and their end will be the eternal state of hell forever. Let's continue to the ver end of verse 4 here in Jude, where it says, These are ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. These are ungodly people that demonstrate their ungodliness in their behavior. They profess with their mouth that they are Christians, but their lifestyle betrays them. They live as if God did not exist. There is no fear in their hearts. We see this in their behavior in two ways. That, pointed, that, that are pointed out here by Jude. The first is they were ungodly people. They disregard the objective faith of the apostles and prophets. They had no fear of God or anyone else. They rejected the authority of God's word and the authority of the leaders of this church. Paul in Galatians 1, 6 through 8 addresses a church at Galatia that had fallen for some false teachers that were distorting the gospel. He says, starting at verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary 
to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. So the first thing we see is that these were ungodly people. The second thing we see is that their lives were marked by antinomianism. That's a big word. Let me explain what it means. Antinomianism, antinomianism means that they thought they were under no obligation to obey the Lord. They denied the authority and lordship of Christ. They perverted the grace of God and turned it into licentiousness. This word licentiousness means sensuality, indecency, unrestricted or unrestrained vice. This is pointing to the sexual sin they were practicing and from the letter, we would assume trying to get others to participate in as well. We are watching a visible church embrace sexual sin all around us. The gay agenda has infiltrated the church along with self-love and many other sins. Scripture is very clear what kind of people we ought to be. Holiness in our everyday life is not optional, but rather it is a measuring stick showing where we are at with the Lord. Our obedience does not add anything at all to our salvation. That was complete in Christ, but it does validate our faith. It shows outwardly what God has done inwardly. Romans 6, 1 and 2 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Far from it. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This passage is not saying that if you obey God, then you will be loved by him. It is saying that if you are loved by him, as one of his elect, you will obey him. This is a mark of a true follower of Christ. I was at Grace Community Church, John MacArthur's church. I, I'll try not to say that, but a lot of people don't know what I'm talking about when I say Grace Community Church. During the Lordship controversy, I was right in the middle of that. John wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus. He has said that when he wrote it, he did not think it would cause such a controversy nationwide and to be attacked as it was. The attacks came in every direction, from super liberal people and institutions all the way to more conservative institutions and people such as Dallas Theological Seminary and specifically Charles Ryrie and Zane Hodges. It was sad to see these men and others attack the biblical doctrine of the Lordship of Christ. Thankfully, to my knowledge, these men that wrote those books, Charles and Zane, did not live a lordship life in any way. But they have led many astray in their zeal for overemphasizing grace to the detriment of sanctification. Sanctification is not an optional work of yours, 
but rather it is a spirit-empowered work in you that validates that you are his. Romans 10, 8 through 10 says, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. And this is verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then verse 10 says, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Many like to quote verse 9, but they leave out verse 10. Many of us are so quick to accept a person's profession of faith based on what they say and not what they do. This passage makes it clear that the result of a true confession of Christ's lordship is a sanctified life. It's one thing to say with your mouth, there is a Jesus and acknowledge that, but they will not confess that he is Lord. Many that profess to be Christians are just like these apostates. They may say they are of Jesus, but their lives prove otherwise. In Matthew 5, or Matthew 7, I'm sorry, Matthew 7, 15 through 20, Jesus says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. There is a false teaching that says we are not to judge people, but that has been abused. We are to judge, but the standard for that judgment is not your preferences and opinions, but the word of God, the objective faith. Let's look at what we must not judge. We must not judge the motives of others based on their decisions, actions, preferences, or their personality. If things are not specifically sinful, then we are to be silent. This does not mean we do not come alongside each other and help each other grow in areas maybe they can do better in, but they are not specifically sinful issues. What must we judge? We must judge explicitly sinful behavior of professing believers. In our passage we just read, we see that is exactly what our Lord is telling us. We need to be fruit inspectors, but we need to make sure our standards is not our preference, but that there are actual sin issues we are dealing with. We have an obligation to each other to call each other to repentance because first, we love Christ, and second, we love each other. We love each other. The goal is always for repentance and restoration when we have to confront someone in their sin. But please make no mistake, we need to make sure it really is sin we are judging and not 
just preferences, personalities, or decisions someone makes. Granted, even these areas, there can be sin issues, but before you approach someone to confront them about their sin, you need to make sure it really is a sin. Clearly, this is an area that the church that Jude had written to had failed in doing. I am thankful we have elders and others that do watch over our souls well, which means we also should be praying for them too because they have a heavy, heavy burden as our watchmen. So to wrap this up, we see that Jude wrote a much different letter than he wanted to initially write. He knew it was urgent to warn the true followers of Christ about these people that had abandoned the faith, a faith that was completed and brought into full view through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have seen that we have a common salvation, a common cause, and a common enemy. These are things we do not have in common with apostates because they reject that which we embrace from Scripture. These apostates had, had been marked out long, ago, long beforehand for this condemnation. They were people that regardless of what they said with their lips showed that they had rejected the Lordship of Christ and the result was a life of licentious living. Let's look at some application of what we've covered today, things that can, we can put into practice this next week. Our first application is we are to find our unity in the objective faith. Those truths found only in Scripture. The gospel is objective, not subjective. I met a lady at the Orlando airport on our way back from the Ligonier Conference. She asked me what we were there for, and I told her I was there representing a ministry. She quickly said, oh, I'm a Christian. Well, I didn't take it for granted that she was one of us. I began to present the gospel in a very non-threatening, gentle way, assuming if she was a true Christian, she would be encouraged by this. Well, the opposite happened. She said, that is your opinion. To which I said, no, the gospel is not subjective. It is objective. She rejected the once delivered faith that we have been entrusted with. Our unity can only be in the objective truth of God's word. And some of us maybe need to do some self-examination to see how we have not We've had unity with people that are not believers that say they are, and we do not do anything about it. Our unity can only be in the objective truth of God's word. Our second application is that we need to be a people prepared to defend the faith. If you don't understand the fundamentals of the faith, how can you ever defend it? I would challenge us to examine our lives and see where we have become complacent without a yearning and striving to continue to grow in Him. Let me just say, we don't study to be intellectual. We study to be changed into His image more and more every day. We don't study so we can prove people wrong. We study so the Holy Spirit can apply that to our lives and change us. It's the beauty of being able to teach you guys is that... <laughs> I'm being changed through it much more probably than you will be 
in my weak efforts here. But we need to study God's word. We need to be a person of God's word. The writer of Hebrews challenged those he was writing to, and that challenge is for us today. In Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, he says, Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. My prayer and hope is that there are none in here that have become dull of hearing not continuing to grow and are still needing milk rather than maturing in Christ through his word. Again, you cannot defend that which you do not know, and you have no excuse for not being grounded in the faith through study of his word. A third application that we can look at is we need to continue to examine our lives to see if there are sins we need to repent of. Sometimes, unfortunately, our lives could possibly look like an apostate during those periods of unrepentant sin. Are we presuming upon God's grace in our lives? Peter said in 2 Peter 3, 14 through 18, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him, found by him in peace, spotless and blameless and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, also as also in all of his letters speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their destruction." You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the air of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. In closing, let us seek unity in the body of Christ based on the objective truth we have been given in Scripture. Let us be spurred on to greater growth in our Lord. Let us take our sins seriously and kill it. Let us not be the ones that hear his word and then it goes out the other ear. Study his word daily. Ask the Lord to make his truths clear to you and keep defending the faith. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your grace and mercy upon us. We thank you for a church that is striving hard to defend the faith, to protect the flock. We do pray for our elders. We pray for Justin even right now as he gets ready to deliver your word to us. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come alongside of each other and to be used in each other's lives to stimulate each other to greater works that would glorify you, Lord. 
We thank you for your salvation that is all of you and none of us. We thank you for your mercies to us and grace. And we thank you for this day. And we thank you for faithful fathers that love you first. And then they love their wives. And then they love their children. And they teach their wives and children your word. We thank you for everything. In Christ's name, amen.